Hi, and welcome back to the Bob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian, and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Joe Justice, and he is going to share with us a little bit about agile and mobbing at Tesla for hardware. Uh, hardware mobbing, open space, agile hardware, social good, uh, founding companies, uh, all kinds of great topics. And then uh, also Joe had brought up that he has a couple of uh, really interesting questions that lead into some great topics. So, uh, but for starters, Joe, why don't you get us started off with a little introduction and uh, maybe we can start talking about mobbing at Tesla. Chris, Austin, it's an honor for me to be here. I've been doing agile hardware since 2006. I created a car company called Wikispeed that for a while was world famous. We did set four world records. Wikispeed's largely closed, but it, it like can't end. It, it's an open source, open source collaborative. So people keep joining and it does keep doing things, uh, but it, it's, it's at a much slower pace than it had been in, it, in its peak when it was setting world records. And that was all agile. We actually built cars from raw materials in some cases at agile conferences all around the world. It, it, it went viral. It was a huge amount of fun. And some people still do parts of that. There's a company called Big Orange Square in Colorado and Florida in the United States, and they still do that. They train agile hardware according to the methods we set up by building cars in companies. So that still exists in some form. Then I went on to be a scrum master for Bill Gates, and I learned a lot from Bill. At that time, Bill was the wealthiest person on the planet by some measures, by many measures, um, by Forbes measures anyway. And uh, I was also a developer at Microsoft when I was a scrum master for Bill, that was at the Bill and Melinda French, French Gates Foundation. So that was not software. That was like vaccine deployments and geopolitical stability measures. And some of the beginnings of cryptocurrency, interesting, was also at that time. Like what does that do to groups like Davos? you know, financial global planning, right? That was part of it. And I got to be part of that at a, at a really high level. Like I remember I was in the, the men's room, I was going to the bathroom, you know, standing up, going to the bathroom. And there's an extremely interestingly dressed gentleman directly to my side. And it's always a question, do you talk in the bathroom or not, right? Especially, I don't know this person's culture. We ended up talking. They were the prince of some country I didn't know that still has a, a, a kingdom and is largely considered to be... Um, Oh, what, what's it called when you're allowed to make your own laws and other countries agree to uphold that? Um, there, there's a word for that. I mean, because anyone can say that sovereign, yeah. right? They were agreed to be sovereign, right? So whether that's warranted or not, they were, they were a, a sovereign prince. So they could actually say, no, it's okay for me to kill people. And then it's okay. Cause that's what sovereign can mean. Anyway, that was that, that was this very interesting men's room conversation. Later I met the Dalai Lama. Like it was a cool time. Wow. Um, Weird and cool. Um, then I consulted to the leadership team at Amazon. Um, and that's when Bezos was CEO. Bezos has since stepped down as CEO to focus on Blue Origin, but it looks like actually it's to focus on yachting and, and, and lifting weights. But in any case, the statement is to be with Blue Origin. Um, I did also consult to Blue Origin. Um, I got to work on the F-22 Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, and the Saab Gripen, a very different multi-role stealth Joint Strike Fighter um, out of Linköping, Sweden. All of these were agile projects, some of which used MOB. So I've been agile hardware 
for, well, since 2006. And um, I was a software developer at Microsoft and uh, a few other shops too, as a consultant developer or, a, or as a full-time developer for a year or two, depending on the company. So I have done software and that's where I got my agile start too. Someone named Chris Lawrence, who's awesome, introduced me to agile in 2004, 2005, 2004. Um, and he went on to do great things. Thank you, Chris Lawrence. Um, and then I got hired into Tesla and I operated Agile at Tesla. And we did mob or ensemble or group work um, for everything, everything. Programming robots, building robots, painting cars, anal analyzing the paint of cars, acquiring the chemicals and supplier relationships for every part of the car, the contracts, um, any piece you can think of for a full stack company that's intending to advance the pace of sustainable energy and then spread the light of consciousness out among the stars. Anything related to that was group work, mob work, ensemble work, swarm. Um, now to get it right out of the way, it wasn't exactly like I've seen mob or ensemble anywhere and it wasn't exactly like the swarm pattern or swarming pattern in a scrum book by Jim Copeland at all. It wasn't exactly like any of those things. However, the most similar I've ever seen outside of the Musk companies is exactly what you would call mob. Um, it, it's not one-to-one -one the same. It's super similar. And for people to get a good idea, yeah, best if you just join one of the Musk companies and you know do it, right? Um, Second best, yeah, watch any of the good YouTubes on a day of mob programming. Um, and it's really close to what we're doing with robots, what we're doing with software, what we're doing with 3D drawings, what we're doing with finances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's a, a lap around yeah. what I've been about. So uh, when when you say, you know, they're, they're doing this in kind of all areas. So is this that... Uh, kind of collaborative work in, you know, no matter where you go. And a lot of it is a number of people come together to, to produce the deliverable at kind of at the same time in the same place on the same computer, that sort of thing. Exactly um, that, Chris. And or same physical space, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and, and uh, you know, so, so where did the term, you know, mob come into it or, you know, was it, was it something where it's like, oh, mob programming is a pattern out there or, or was this used to describe something that was already happening or, you know, how, how did that, like, well, what's the origin there? How, how did it kind of start up uh, in, in that space? Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So a lot of agilists that are in Silicon Valley or have come to Silicon Valley find a different flavor of agile for better and worse than they find, for example, in Poland, or for example, in Tokyo, or for example, in New Jersey. There are different flavors of Agile that do have regional colors. And Silicon Valley's Agile is phenomenally effective in some ways, and maybe less formal in a few key areas that it would benefit from being more formal, but I could try to make that case later. I mean, I've not yet seen the perfect Agile anywhere, right? So I'm not going to say this is the right one. And you know, who am I to say anyway? Who am I to judge? 
Um, but the agility in Tesla was almost entirely unlabeled, mm -hmm. almost entirely. It's simply, this is the way we work. And for those of us listening to this podcast or those of us here talking right now live, when we walk into a development space, in my case, it's hardware development or software, it doesn't matter, but whether it's software, for example, you walk in, if there's individual laptops or desktops even inside Manila cube walls, you know, we're probably not doing ensemble pair or mob work here. Whereas if you have a projector in the olden days or great big LED panels, maybe multiples with a rainbow of seats or an organ or a setup like that with at least two keyboards and two sets of mice or multiples or Bluetooth ones that are easy to pass around, you say probably we're doing some kind of group work. And if it's your first time walking to one of those spaces, no one needs to give you a name. You're just like, well, this is the only place for me to work, I think. So I guess I'll try to figure out what's going on. And maybe there's a timer with a goal statement. And you say, I guess that means something. What? A few hours into it, you're kind of into the rhythm, whether anyone named it or not. Well, that is exactly how the Musk companies are operating now. Remember, they've been going at this for more than 20 years now. So people don't use words. One of the pieces that was so strong for me as coming to Tesla in 2020, I mean, I'd been working with Tesla on a consulting basis, a, a talking basis since 2010. Um, but finally joining the company as a full-time employee, I saw how they have evolved their own flavor because they have more than a hundred thousand employees doing these mobs now. So absolutely its own culture has created and reinforced and they don't need to train it. When you have a hundred thousand people operating in a fairly highly tuned way, I was shocked by how good it was. <laughs> you just join and that's faster than having someone train you or label it. So something I've done since then is try to say, here's the nearest word I know of to point the way and say, the Musk companies really look like they're doing good things. It looks like they're fast. It looks like it's fun. It looks like it's now sustainable, efficient. It's changing the world. It's worth looking into what they're doing what's near that people know about? And I'd say mob, but inside Tesla, it was absolutely unnamed. Yeah. Um, so uh, kind, of, kind of going to the hardware mobbing. So what does mobbing in hardware look like? You know, I guess compared to what you know of, of software ensembles, mobs, anything like that. Awesome point, Chris. Um, whatever the goal is, the means to add value towards that goal, need to have at least two. So you can at least have a pair. So if you're wrenching something, you need at least two wrenches. And even if there's only one thing to wrench, pairing and rotation means the other person can do it right away, right? So if you're building robots, the toolkits and instruction sets, you wanna make sure there's enough for as many people as can collaboratively add value in parallel without a dependency chain building up. And so that means you have, it looks like mob software. For those of you who've seen mob software, we have a rainbow of people looking at big monitors. Well, CAD, 3D drawing, 
looks exactly the same because your tool is computers. Um, a lot of finance looks the same. A lot of machine learning looks the same, including auditing using existing machine learning. Uh, of course, developing machine learning looks exactly the same because it's development. A lot of work is digital. That said, the product is hardware. So there's lots of hardware work too. There's welding, there's um, bending metal, there's drilling metal, um, there's loading and unloading. You're lifting 20 kilograms a lot I mean, all day, um, loading into things, pulling carts, making carts to pull things because you just invented something and you need to figure out how to pull it. So you're making carts for rocket engines and stuff. SpaceX has these really cool pallets to anchor the rocket engines well. And those are all made on site because who makes those for you, right? So <laughs> you, you make a lot of the fixtures that do things. So whatever tool you use to do that, to add value, you want more than one of those. And if it's effective for five people to mob on something, and often it is, you want five of those. Even if only one person can fit, you have five people familiar with and fingering the tooling ready to rotate in, or maybe you can fit two people. So physical constraints matter. Then there's an analogy here, Chris, that I think you'll like, Austin, you also might enjoy, and that's compiling. Making something in hardware is compiling. That, that's, that's what it is. So what you wish you could do is draw a car or a phone or I mean, whatever, a shaving cream, a, a, a new, a new uh, plastic coating, you know, chemical polymer chain. You wish you could draw it on the computer and then hit compile. That's what you wish you could do, right? That's, that's the goal. And when you can, then it's 100% a software problem. You can use autocomplete software as you develop that stack for designing your polymer chain, right? Just like we have to help us do good software, right? Same things. You can audit cyclomatic complexity and match it against libraries of good patterns. All of this makes sense. Compiling is the thing. And this is part of what Musk understands. And a lot of people don't still. When Musk says, the machine that builds the machine is the product. That's your compiler. The factory is your compiler. What you wish you could do is just work on the computer. And that way the computer helps you, all these patterns work, that is the goal. Now, whenever you start something, you don't have an automated compiler yet. Like think about physically putting hole punches in cards for punch card development. Like that is a good analogy to what compiling means in a lot of hardware still, right? So there's someone to actually put holes in card cardstock, right? Well, in this case, it's someone welding. It's someone checking the welds. It's someone holding an x-ray machine on a gurney to get in the position so you can x-ray the welds because that's part of quality inspection on most kinds of welding. So that, the physical compiling. And in a lot of companies that takes five to seven years, the physical compiling. And this creates then a waterfall. And in fact, it should because your compile time is so long. But here's the problem Many companies don't even try to shorten the compile time in hardware. So imagine that if you're doing software and then your compile button takes five to seven years, you'd be exactly the way most hardware companies work, one-to-one. -one. So of course you'd have like financial approval gates and all this overhead garbage because it takes so long once you hit the compile button. And you're negotiating with unions, you're negotiating to acquire land 
to set up your stock backplane to feed the facility with these new parts. Like, it becomes a waterfall. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if your compile time, there's a magical thing in the human brain that happens once the compile time takes less than 30 days. And more and more and more magical things happen as you get shorter. I mean, once it's inside four hours, it's a very different game. And once it's less than five seconds, you can truly do test and learn, right? So all these practices fit the compile length. And what Musk has done is ruthlessly prioritize decreasing the compile time to the point where new wiring for the charge port to the battery pack is deployed in production from the concept of maybe we should change this to designed to built to in production every car has it in three hours and this is what's shocking knocking the compile time down now it makes super sense to mob around drawing in cad the charging mechanisms because you can compile them so fast and part of what makes that work is what we've all learned in software. If you have someone architecting software and then handing off like paper stacks to a different team to develop your architecture, you have the messaging game misunderstanding both ways. And the architect often makes inadequate or not fit to purpose architecture and they don't learn from trying to build it. So their knowledge freezes and they know it. And and inside they start feeling insecure. So they start acting even stronger well, you built it wrong, right? Now you get social problems. Well, the same is true in hardware. If you have people drawing the CAD of a car bumper and then they hand it, send it off to production engineering and production engineering changes it and everyone hates the changes and they send that off to production manufacturing and they have to change it again to actually be able to make it. Uh, the Porsche 918 Spider was an extremely expensive Porsche, beautiful, extremely well-engineered, On the underside of the bumper, it says in German, it fits in CAD. And that was a hate message from the production teams saying, I don't care if it fits in CAD, we're the ones that actually have to make it. (laughs) So the concept of architect's code is just as true in hardware. If you draw something in CAD, you need to weld it. You need to grind it you need to make the die that's gonna be extruding these things for the next 100,000 or the next 10, because maybe you change the extrusion, right? So the idea of you draw it, you make it. And that's a level of cross-functionality that a lot of hardware companies still don't want. They say, no, I've got my white color. I don't get my hands dirty. That's for the people over there. So that reinforces the waterfall. Well, man, I will tell you, Elon Musk drills metal every day. Elon Musk, the wealthiest person on planet earth now, bends metal, programs robots, gets robots unstuck, cleans up spills every day. If that's the bottleneck, that's where Musk is. And Musk joins the mobs. Doesn't talk to the mob saying this is what you should do ever. Musk joins the mob, takes the turns, does the work, whatever the work is, hardware, software. And Musk has been doing this for 20 years. That is what makes someone cross-functional. And People are shocked in interviews with Elon how deep Elon will go into rocketry, how deep Elon will go into AI, how deep Elon will go into manufacturing supply chain, currency and the role of government. I mean, really deep in all of these. Well, all that did it is mobbing 
on whatever is the bottleneck, mm. not where you want to go. And, and, and Musk sometimes is really tired in interviews and says things like, people would not want to be me. And here's what Musk means. Musk often doesn't like where the bottleneck is. <laughs> but wherever it is, that's the mob that Musk is in. So Musk is like, I do a lot of things a lot of people don't want to do <laughs> all the time. Nice. Okay, wow, this is fascinating. So I think that, that really helps characterize a little bit more because in my mind, you know, so me, my, my experiences are more limited, right? So I've done ensembling or mobbing with code, right? So it's kind of like, hey, hey, let's, uh, we have this problem. Let's create a new function to solve the problem. And if the person doesn't know how to do it, you know, I'll be like, oh, go to line 10, hit the enter key and then type, you know, function. And then here's the name or whatever, right? And so if translating that to hardware, I think what you're saying at one point is similar to the code port because it'll be like in CAD. And I, at one yeah. point I was going to become an architect and I, I abandoned that at one point in my life, but I did a little bit of CAD. So it'd be similar to, hey, uh, go to this part of the screen and click this to draw that, right? And so um, am, I, am I tracking so far with how it might be in a hardware type mob? But then exactly. the big difference that I love is what you said is that when we hit the compile button on an IDE and then the, you know, the, the page shows up, they literally will compile, they'll switch from computer mode to building mode. And then it'll be like, oh, uh, you know, Joe, can you go to, you know, part a XYZ and turn it 10 degrees or something? Is, yep. is that, yep. And then the rest of the team That's is there and engaged in that process. <laughs> yep. exactly. Wow. That is, that is fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that really helps characterize it. And um, so that, that answers my how question, I guess. And maybe you hit on this and I missed it when Chris asked the origin question, but how did they, oh, finish, please. You got one thing? Oh, no, no I, was, I was applauding the train. I love where you're taking this conversation right now, Austin. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. When you hit, when you might've hit it when Chris asked the origin question, but like, why why did it get there how did it get there to working this way right because for us you know i think i heard uh woody say it this morning at one point it was like people have been discovering mobbing in many different spheres maybe didn't have a name for it or whatever what led to this style of work um for you know tesla for example from your experience of being there like what what led to um instead of all working separately let's design and build together and test together and take turns, you know, you know, navigating, maybe they didn't use that word, but um, yeah, yeah. What, what led to that discovery to work this way? Awesome, Austin. And this actually leads to a question I've got for Chris and yourself. Um, Musk's top statement about how to work, and by top, I mean, most often said, like the prime directive about how to work is pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. Mm. Not maximum efficiency, not customer delight, not ease of management, not simplicity. All those are benefits and point to pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. Like none of those that I said are, are not respected and important, but the one goal for how you work is pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. Then the next question is, well, then what do you work on? And that's a separate conversation that we could choose to have if you want. I, I think it's also very interesting. But first, why mob? Why ensemble? Why group work? 
why not only pairing? Why mob, right? Why not just two people? Or, or why not alone work? Well, if you are ruthlessly pursuing pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run over all others, even if in the near term, it's more expensive, even if in the near term, it's more complex, which often it's not, by the way, but even if it were, that naturally says, where's the bottleneck? Let's dogpile on the bottleneck. Okay, we are now dogpiling on the bottleneck. bottleneck. What is an efficient way to dogpile on the bottleneck? How do we increase the efficiency of our group attack on the bottleneck to pace of innovation? Because that is the only thing that matters in the long run. It's not maximum efficiency of this individual employee. And it's not maximum efficiency of this department, which is a made up concept anyway, and probably a broken like old fiefdom idea that's easy to think about, like kind of like the Dunbar's number, it's not reality, but it fits our brain, right? So if we throw out these artificial constructs that are likely moving us backwards and holding us back, um, like departments or directors, like it's definitely not, does it make your director look good? Or, or even does this make you look like a better candidate for your next promotion? Like that is so, Actually, those have been eliminated by now. Like there aren't promotions in the Musk company. And this has to do with really that pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. So if you're looking out for yourself and your career, you're missing that opportunity. So they say, how do we make sure everyone's just rich? And, <laughs> and they do it. It's actually a really cool model. I think a lot of companies should do financially what the Musk companies do. But there are no poor performance reviews, right? Because then you're worried about your performance review. But as a result, there's no promotions. They just make sure everyone gets rich, which is kind of cool. That's a whole conversation by itself. But in any case, that's why structured practices like mob, like ensemble, like group work and pairing, in some cases, really only two people can fit, you know, because you do have physical constraints. So pairing also, and all the awesome information, the extreme programming community learned about pairing. Well, what about if you have two senior people, two new people, a senior person and junior person, these categories and angles of pairing, even more simple than mob, right? Well, those all get employed when pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. Mm -hmm. Then that points me to Austin and Chris, my question. So I teach mob now in hardware and oh, hello. Hello, little people behind Chris. <laughs> and that points me to, to one of my two burning questions. When I teach mob for hardware and software now, the second most asked question, well, actually, let's do the first. The, the top most frequently asked question of, of me as the instructor is, if you have a driver and a navigator, which you don't have to have these roles in mob, but, but if you do, and when I teach mob, when I introduce people's first mob, I do a simple version. There's one driver and there's only one navigator, which is, has pros and cons, but that way the driver who's their first time as a driver in almost 100% of the cases, they only have one person to listen to at a time. Then everyone else, one, two, three, maybe four people is in a role that I simply called mob. And the students ask me, well, what does the mob do? Because that's, they're just sitting there. I said, well, you do quality check, you do quality audit. And I don't want you to distract the driver, but you can quietly give advice to the navigator. And you also can do experiments. You can research, you can research in your browser, or your phone, or if it's in hardware, you can try to fit other things together 
or you know, align tools, kit parts, so they're ready and in the proper orientation. You can watch how the driver and navigator are working. You can line stuff up for them as they go. You know, you can 5S, 7S. Um, and I still get the question, okay, what did we really do in the mob role? Now, part of that is because I've constructed such a simple mob for their first mobs. But the second is there's likely more value these people can be directly adding to feel, to feel happy and contributory without distracting the driver any more than is already happening. And I wanna learn from the both of you about it. What tips would you give to a student who's in their first mob and let's say they're in the mob role, what would you recommend? What, what should the mob role do? Yeah, that's a great one, Chris. Are you gonna say the same one you said this morning in our chat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the, uh, the mob programming RPG? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's where mine went. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, cool. So, go ahead. Chris. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, Willem Larson and I were uh, having a chat a long time ago. And, uh, and we, we noticed that we had a number of terms like navigator, navigating the navigator, researcher, kind of roles, um, you know, anthropologists, uh, one of the newer ones is traffic cop. Um, and, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, he, he, he's also, Willem is also very much into the um, kind of uh, creating uh, games out, out of things uh, in general. And so he, he, um, this, this kind of role came up of a kind of mob anthropologist, right? So basically the study of the roles in the mob. And, uh, and so it's a really uh, fantastic um, system and we'll link it in the show notes for sure as well. But, um, you know, basically each of the roles are outlined they and there are ways to get experience points and level up. And so uh, you start as driver, navigator and robber. And then by the end of it, um, you know, the nose specifically is just looking for refactoring opportunities, like what smells bad, right? They're, they're sniffing right there, the nose. Um, and then uh, others, uh, there's uh, also the sponsor who is just looking to make sure that the unheard voice is heard if somebody's kind of speaking up, but not available. And there's a number of other in there. And so, um, uh, but I think, you know, kind of the core of the question, that anthropology role is really interesting because yeah for sure uh, people started doing ensemble programming or mob programming like ran uh, kind of as out of necessity right and and then and then maybe they stopped working that way at, you know, at certain points or maybe they just kept working that way and never named things but um, you know, communicating across the industry about these things, uh, you need kind of an anthropology, you need somebody uh, kind of codifying all of these different, um, these different things. And so, uh, I, yeah, this morning, <laughs> we were on a call, uh, a different call. And uh, we just recommended like, hey, you know, go and check out um, all the different roles here and, and play the game, because the game is actually quite fun. You, you can kind of do a kata, uh um, you know, test-driven development or refactoring kata, and you just do it as a mob, but you try and get experience points in these different roles. And um, one of the one of the ones that really gets people is you get experience points as the driver for ignoring everyone else except for the navigator. And then as the navigator, uh, you um, you know, you, you deliver that. But as the um, what well, he ended up calling it the rear admiral, but we used to call it the navigating the navigator. And the rear admiral gets uh, points not for navigating the driver, but for providing assistance to the navigator to help them accomplish something maybe outside of their skill level, that sort of stuff. So some really uh, good things there. 
And, and I love the game too, because, uh, you know, whether you play the game or just get introduced to the concepts, it really might people's minds open up to like, oh my gosh, wow. So there's way more than just contributing at the task at hand. I might be researching for the thing that's coming next. Or I think one of Chris's favorites is if you notice this, you know, whatever the driver navigator doing could be automated, he'll be automating it or getting ready to suggest the automation. Or one I love interpersonally is I love watching interpersonal interactions and being like, okay, I think, uh, you know, there's some room for growth here and giving each other feedback, or maybe we call retro on a topic and help the team, you know, learn, learn something. And so uh, there's just, it's just, you know, like you said, if you're optimizing, what, what how did Musk say it? Optimizing for uh, innovation? Pace of innovation, Pace yeah. of innovation right? Um, you know, so if you're not learning something incredibly new, that's just totally capturing your attention with what they're doing at the moment, you can start to be like, okay, what's the next thing that's going to increase the pace of innovation for this mob and team, you know, and that could be anything, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, cool. I, I'm, I'm on a roll. I got a, an awesome answer. So may I ask, is it okay when I'm teaching, if I use these concepts and I, I did actually even download this picture, level one, two, three, this small yeah. picture, may, may I share that with my students, may I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, uh, Willem uh, published that under the Creative Commons license. And oh, so, awesome. uh, yeah, if you just check the license on the GitHub, um, a lot of that stuff is, is there and available. And he regularly takes contributions from, from other mobs out there as well. Um, and uh, there are a number of other kind of anthropology style stuff. I know that IBM had done one um, and uh, a few others that are out there. Jay Bazuzzi has another one. But I, I particularly like the RPG uh, because it's a game yeah, and right you can learn I, about it, right? I opened the, the link. Sorry, it started an ad playing, but I, I opened the RPG link and it, I didn't realize it was YouTube and it, it, someone's yeah. trying to send me something. Sorry. <laughs> good. <laughs> well, uh, Willem, um, if their contact information is not on that Trello, you, you shared a Trello link with me just now in the chat. Thank you. If yeah. Willem's contact information is not on there, if you'd please put it in the chat. So wherever I put this, I can give attribute. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think I think the GitHub link uh, that that'll get you pretty close to his contact information. And then I'll, I'll send you another one as well. And we'll put it in the show notes. And uh, yeah. yeah. Genius. Awesome. Then the, the next one is how um, from my for my students, how do I prove to waterfall thinkers that it is more efficient to mob than having everyone work alone? <laughs> I yeah. like how Joe's turned this show around on us. I know, know, right? I feel like I'm being interviewed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I only had these two questions. So that's it. You already got one down. <laughs> Well, I'm going to actually hand it off to Chris on this one because, uh, you know, because Chris has had the privilege of having to justify this to management. Uh, how many times over, Chris? Three yeah, or four? Yeah, many, many, many times. And, and, you know, talking to other people about it in their companies and things like that. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, different great arguments out there. Um, I know that... Uh, I, you know, just from a quality control and releases standpoint, um, it, it kind of delivering frequently, you know, uh, feels really good for the team and then also, uh, you know, shows up um, uh, very prominently. And so, you know, one thing that I think I tell people now that I didn't used to necessarily tell people is that 
um, mobbing optimizes for lean flow efficiency. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, essentially you're eliminating all the waste because waiting is painful. Having excess inventory is painful. Having, having unnecessary motion is painful and it just gets amplified by the number of people in your mob. And so, uh, you know, all of the lean wastes that are present in your system, uh, so, sort of start to evaporate because the inspect and adapt cycle for your particular team is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, very, very frequently looked at. Um, and so all these like micro problems that might exist on a team working individually that people just deal with day to day. Um, you know, I think when, when, when I first started mobbing for the first time, uh, we discovered that a person on the team was spending about 80% of their day on support tickets and then getting their, the rest of their work done in overtime. And so it was like, you know, we were able to automate all of that work away and, and free up their day so that they were actually spending their day working on new uh, work and, and things like that. So, um, you know, the, the short answer is optimizing for a lean flow efficiency uh, very quickly, but um, there's all kinds of uh, benefits. You know, people, uh, I, I really like this graph um, from Llewellyn Falco who has, who, who kind of draws a person's efficiency over time throughout the day and then overlaps that with somebody else's efficiency and then somebody else's efficiency. And so somebody's feeling down or tired, you have people that are more alert there too at the same time. And that fluctuates from person to person from time to time. Maybe something really hard is going on in that person's life and they're not bringing their best work, right? If you, if you have the four people there, then, then the, the, uh, the top, the peak efficiency for the team around quality and development is going to be uh, the, 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 the top of any one person at that time. And so you get the top contribution from all the team. Uh, so I, I really like that graph. Um, and then, uh, I mean, there's just a number of other things, but uh, you know, elimination of bugs, like defect count going way down and being able to spend your time on real work rather than rework, um, those sorts of things are just really good stuff. So <laughs> those are some of the answers I might give. Genius, Chris, is there anything you'd like to add to that list, Austin? No, it's a, uh, I think the one thing I'll add is we know it's a controversial topic and we know like other topics, people are going to think it's bananas. It's crazy. There's no way a CEO would ever buy a return on investment for something that ridiculous. And so we know it sounds crazy and uh, we, you know, we welcome skepticism and, you know, we, we love, you know, discussing, debating it some, but also, you know, I also love the idea try it out. And, uh, you know, you can measure it and inspect in your own uh, context and find out what works for you. But, uh, yeah, like it, turn it into a scientific process. And, you know, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm one of those weird uh, philosophy people. So I like debating stuff in the abstract. But, uh, hey, we're, we're doing engineering. Why not, uh, you know, go look to the horse's mouth and uh, try it out and run the experiment in your context? Because every context is so different. And so, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's the quickest way to find out in your context, I believe. But, uh, and it's hard to argue with the results, you know? So one thing I've noticed is that when teams aren't delivering well, um, you'll get a lot of questions from management or the people receiving your product and things like that. They wanna start inspecting and looking into how you're doing things. But if you're getting solid results and every day they're seeing the value of what you're doing, then a lot of that tends to fade away because they're just so happy with the output. And so, um, 
in, in practice, it just usually fades away as a problem as far as justifying it, just because in the experiment of doing it, things just get better. And it's obvious to everyone it's better that there's no need to justify it anymore. But, uh, um, but again, we welcome skepticism. And uh, we are now getting near the end of the show. And I'm going to turn it back to you, Joe. <laughs> Before we close the show, this has been fantastic, by the way. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And uh, I feel like we could have another three hours of this. Uh, there's, uh, there's enough uh, content here in discussion, but uh, we won't do that today. Um, but before we close the show, uh, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to uh, share or plug before we close it out? Um, I'm chair of the Agile Business Institute. Um, we're, we are just now adding a new menu item. So hopefully by the time you hear this recording, it's added, that is um, courses we recommend or coaches we recommend or recommended other things that are we're not formally, for whatever reason, part of the Agile Business Institute, which is part of the, the goal anyway, to be an umbrella organization, or we, we like the tropical theme, I would say the palm tree with many coconuts. Um, and, and so there's an opportunity for others to add their coconut. If they've read our book and it feels 80% plus like what is important to them, that, that's a good litmus test, right? That they're generally on the same page, then we would love, we, we were just adding a one hour course taught by someone we just met, but had a huge amount of respect for once we got to understand them. What they do is they do agile audits for the Japanese government. The Japanese government now has this intense digitalization government sponsored initiative. They call it DX that's across the entire nation. And a part of that is agile and the government sponsors agile audits. Well, how agile are you really? If it takes you seven years to go from design to output, we think your agility is actually very low, right? Um, so they have these audits. This person is a specialist in running these audits. We think that's awesome. So we're saying, would you at least once a year host a one hour online workshop on how to present yourself best for these audits or even skill up to become an auditor if that were your ambition. And we'll put it on abi-agile.com under this other menu item. So there's what we've traditionally been doing is our go-to-markets like our Agile Hardware Developer course, which is in seven languages now, um, then this area. So what I'd like to plug is if you, respect or interested in or resonate with the type of agile we do, which is pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. And there are other types of agile that are beautiful, but are not that. Like there are some types of agile that are only around psychological safety, which is super important and loving. But if the end destination is only a slow innovation culture that's super psychologically safe, that's not the type of agile we're, we're aiming to do. We're trying to do excellent psychological safety because then people can have a faster pace of innovation because that's the only thing that matters in the long run, right? So if that resonates with someone, we would like to start plugging in coaches, courses, things on abi-agile.com. Then that's related to the book that would be your litmus test. And that is Scrum Master uh, by Joe Justice, by me. And that's in seven languages now, uh, at least in draft Lean Pub. Lean Pub, 
facebook.com slash you slash Joe Justice has that. And then also our Ad, Agile Children's books. I should say my, I, I wrote those, the Agile Children's books, which are super cute. Um, and they're from like read to your kids, like Goodnight Moon level to like maybe third grade, maybe might hold their interest. So there's, there's a range of books. Like everyone is Santa is, is super cute. Santa watches people work to see what's make them happy and fast and then makes a list and checks it twice. It's, it's actually adorable. Um, and it's better than I just paraphrased. Like the actual text is, is, is much gooder to use the technical. Then to get a little further out there, way longer term ambitions, but part of the reason I'm alive, I think. Working for Musk, you start to think on a thousand year trajectories because that's what Musk does. So actually Elon's decision-making tree is super predictable. If you think what's good for consciousness to spread out among the stars in a healthy, constructive, interesting, loving way over the next thousand years or more. So it's, wow, that's not gonna be higher ROI this quarter. Why would Tesla do that? Well, that's not how Musk is prioritizing at all, right? So if you're thinking on a thousand year timelines, it's very natural, you can anticipate what Musk does. It's, it's actually not challenging. It's quite clear. Well, that starts to rub off on you when you're in the company. So I'm thinking, well, what do I want to have nudged the world towards with my lifetime? You know, even if it's nowhere near the definition of done in my lifetime, right? That's just not even a consideration. Now, interestingly, these long-term timelines make more money now than any other method, right? If you add up all the other car companies' values, market caps, they're about the same as Tesla's value right now. I mean, every other company equals together, equals about Tesla now. Um, so it, interestingly, this not prioritizing money now makes way more money now <laughs> than any other methods. So what, what would I like to try to do? Um, I, I have a, a wife who struggles with English. She's Japanese and I struggle with Japanese. I was born in the United States and my theory is any language that takes more than three months for a reasonably intelligent, dedicated, interested adult of, of average intelligence to learn is at risk from not becoming the global second language. So right now the global second language is English. That is at risk. Um, different forms of Chinese are far and away the global first language by several, by, by several hundred million <laughs> and there is a very easy possible future where the global second language changes to a form of Chinese. Now that doesn't bother me at all. I would like a global second language and it doesn't have to be the one that I was lucky enough to be born speaking. I will sweat and try to learn it, whatever it is. But that transition period is gonna be super painful and a lot of information will be lost. So what could we do if there's a version of, in this case, English, only because it's the current global second language in terms by numbers, not because I said it is, but by if you pull people, what's your second language? Like by numbers, English is currently the most spoken global second language, read and spoken. Well, if you simplify English, for example, every time you see an irregular verb, throw it out. So instead of saying forgot, start to say forgetted. I forgetted that. Um, and instead of saying second, you just say two, right? If you start to do that, you throw out the exceptions. 
And you could do that by looking at how people teach English and say, where, where are the line items on, on exceptions and tenses that are rarely used? Like pluralization, does it really matter if it's a shirt or shirts? Does it really matter? And is the is demarking between one and more than one actually valuable? Couldn't I just say three shirt? Couldn't I do that? Yeah. Actually, in terms of speaking, it's easier to say shirts than shirt anyway. So couldn't I say one shirts and three shirts? But anyway, standardize and, and throw out the idea of one or more than one. Like, how often does that change my strategy in my daily life? You could have what I would call internet language. Hmm. And internet language is basically what non-native speakers, how they speak English on the internet now. So not Esperanto, which then everyone has to learn, which is awesome, but everyone has to learn and it hasn't caught on and it's already hundred years old. Mm. So it, it didn't take yet. But if you look at people on Discord and how they talk and how they write and how they meme, basically you throw away most of the exception cases and many of the conjugations that don't immediately add value. And it is understandable. That I think is the destination for the global second language. So part of why I think I'm alive is to try to make it so when people do speak or write that way, it's not looked down on. Hmm. It's not any less legal. Contracts could be written that way. And if they're understandable, they're upheld. And if someone speaks that way in a serious presentation, it's not viewed as less educated, which is what makes this boys and girls club. Oh, well, you speak with this accent, so I trust you in business. That misses many of the global collaboration opportunities that would benefit pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run. Mm. So part of my wish is to nudge with my lifetime towards what I'll call internet language. Nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, it's, it's really fun going to that, what you call the thousand foot level, uh, thousand years. Thousand year. Yeah, <laughs> I, lo I love thinking that way too. And uh, yeah, this has just been wonderful having you on the show, Joe. So tonight when I'm reading my kids, uh, Lord of the Rings also pull out, uh, what is it? We're all Santa Claus, you know? So. Everyone is Santa. Everyone yeah. is Santa, you know, I'll give it a shot. Or a uh, good night nut, good night bolt. Yes. And then I'll start undoing their English lessons. So they'll start speaking in this new way. So my wife will love that. Um, but uh, thanks so much for being on the show. This was a blast. Uh, well, uh, to our audience, uh, if this you're inspired by Joe and what he had to share, you know, you know, either mobbing at Tesla, mobbing hardware, you know, return on investment for mobbing, how to learn the different ways to mob. Please share this with someone, you know, uh, like, subscribe, all the things. Uh, we love feedback on YouTube, Twitter and more. And uh, until next time, uh, have a good one, everyone. Mob well and have a good one. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Austin. Thank you, Joe.